Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we just want to take a moment and thank you for your church. Thank you for your people. Thank you, Lord, for the joy and the fulfillment they bring to our lives as a family, to my life individually. Lord, I'm just beyond grateful for the family you've given me in your church. Lord, I also want to thank you this morning for my family, for my wife, my children, my family, my extended family. Lord, you've just been so gracious and so kind. I can't help but think of how hard this time would be without the friends and family that you've placed in our lives that we can connect to. Uh, Lord, we pray this morning, Lord, that you'll bless as we teach your word here in the book of Ezra. Lord, would you minister to us, Lord, open our eyes to see what we might be able to accomplish for you. Lord, help us never to grow weary in well-doing, but Lord, help our eyes to be set on the very best that you have for our lives. And then, Lord, help us to work hard to achieve it. Help us, Lord, never to give up. Lord, help us to press on for the cause of Christ. Lord, would you bless this lesson this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start by thanking all of you that have been able to attend our drive-in services. What a blessing it's been to see you all again and to be back together. And as we continue forward in this phasing in of regular church time, uh, one of the things I want you to rest assured in, and that is the fact that we have been praying and seeking the Lord's guidance and counsel and direction, and I do believe that soon and very soon we'll be back to church as usual, back inside the building at normal times, and we are very much looking forward to that. And uh, boy, I tell you, I, I look forward to getting this time behind us. Amen. Uh, do keep in mind as well that we will be starting on our new church roof tomorrow morning. And I'm so excited about this. We are looking forward to it very much. If you get a time, an hour or two here or there throughout the course of the next couple of weeks, give me a call. Let me know when you're coming. Uh, that way we can make sure that our schedules align. But uh, I, I think it's going to go very well. I'm very blessed with the fact that Ivers Construction is getting their whole team back together to help us for two or three days uh, to get as much metal up on the roof as we can in a short period of time. And so I'm very, very grateful for that. Uh, what a blessing that is. I was not expecting that, uh, but the schedule just worked out right. And so we're very excited and looking forward to that. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Ezra chapter number 3. Ezra chapter number 3 as we continue on. In our study of the life of Ezra, a great warrior, a great spiritual warrior of the Bible. He was asked to do something very difficult at a very hard time. And he, he is obedient to God's command. And that's one thing that you will notice about these spiritual warriors over and over and over again. A lot of the times what distinguishes an ordinary Christian from an extraordinary Christian is obedience. Simple loving obedience and that's what we see happening here in these men for a quick recap in chapter number one we looked at what we call the great revival you see god must be the one doing the work of reviving his people uh, that is not a work that can be accomplished by simply a charismatic preacher that is not a work that can be accomplished by the right kind of music it's not a work that can be accomplished by the right lighting or the right laser show or the right video on the big screen. True, lasting revival is something God accomplishes in the life of his people. Not only did we look at the great revival in chapter number one, but we also looked at the great congregation in chapter number two. And we saw that God 
must be the one doing the work of building his church. That is God's responsibility. Now, do we participate in that process? Absolutely we do. In fact, that's what we'll be looking at today is the fact that we do participate in this effort of building God's church. But we must constantly be reliant and constantly recognize that God is the one and the only one that can build his church. Now, why is this so critically important for us to remember on this side? As we are a small congregation and as we are waiting and watching God build our, our church little by little, why is it so important for us to remember that God is the one who builds the church? Well, for no other reason than that it protects you and I from being lifted up in pride, from growing arrogant over time, and thinking that somehow we accomplished this great work. The fact is, is we can do nothing apart from Him. Uh, apart from God's leadership and apart from God's inspiration and direction and, and empowerment and funding, apart from all the things that God does in His work of building the church, you and I have no room to glory in ourselves. If we glory, let us glory in this, that God is the one who has accomplished this work, and all we did was avail ourselves to his leadership and his work. And so God is the one who builds his church, and I am looking forward uh, to continuing to watch him do just that. Now, I want to start off today's lesson because we're moving into chapter number three. And I'll give you the title of chapter number three here in just a moment. But I want to start by taking a moment and emphasizing the danger of settling in the Christian life. I fear that settling has become the absolute norm almost in all Christianity. In fact, I'll take it one step further. If you would like for me to put numbers out there, I would say that 90 to 95, maybe even higher percent of all Christians have settled in their Christian life. The idea being that they've chosen to stop short of God's very best for their life. And you'll see in a moment why this is important for me to mention this at the onset of today's lesson. And I want to give you some biblical examples of settling in the Bible. And the first one that comes to mind is Lot in the land of Sodom. You'll remember that Lot uh, and Abram at the time was his name. Abraham is what he would later be called. Lot and Abraham had a conversation about who would go where. Ultimately, Lot chose the plains of Sodom. And that's where he ended up dwelling. And of course, we know that over a course of time, he moved from outside the city to the city wall, and then from the city wall, he moved inside the city. And next thing you know, whenever the angels go to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, they actually have to go deep into the city, right where the greatest wickedness dwells, and there we find Lot. Lot began settling the moment he chose the plains of Sodom to live in. And you see, that's what happens in our Christian lives. We start by making a simple seemingly innocent decision without consulting God and asking for his direction and leadership. And next thing we know, we find ourselves head over heels deep in sin. And that's what happens with Lot. Where did it begin? It began with him settling. 
I also can't help but think of the spies that went into Canaan land. You'll remember there were twelve. And when they came back to give a report on what the land was like after just a short period of time of, of going from Egypt to the Canaan land, the promised land, they go in and they come back and ten of those spies say, there's no way, there, there's giants, we're like grasshoppers, uh, there's no way we could ever defeat them. And they intimidated the people and they, they were basically saying, why not just live on this side of the Jordan? Why would we ever press on and go beyond into a place that's so dangerous and a place that, that we could never conquer? But there were two men, you'll remember, two, that decided that they believed God was capable of overcoming. It was, of course, Caleb and Joshua. And so you have that scenario. You also have Solomon. Solomon actually, at the beginning of his life and compared to the end of his life, we can see the results of someone settling. Solomon started out as a young, young man. He prayed and asked God for wisdom. And what did God do? God poured wisdom into his life to a degree uh, which the world has never seen. We've never seen someone before or someone after as wise as was Solomon. Nevertheless, as he got up in years, as he began to marry, one thing led to another and he started settling and he started falling short of God's very best for his life. And next thing you know, after God had expressly told him not to gather up many wives and many concubines and horses and chariots and all these different things, but to trust in the living God and to wait patiently for him after all of that counsel and after all of that wisdom, Solomon settles. And the end of his life looks very different from the beginning of his life. Where did it begin? It began when he began settling in his walk with God. All through Scripture, we are inspired to never settle for second best. Ezra and God's people could have settled, just as their fathers before them. They could have simply continued serving God half-heartedly in Persia. Everything was fine. Everything was normal now. They had become... Uh, acquainted with the culture and the landscape and the people and no doubt they had begun to develop friendships and all of these different things. Why couldn't they just stay there and serve God from there? Well, it's really simple. God wanted them back in Jerusalem with a fully restored temple. God's name was being sullied all around the world because God had sent his people into captivity in order to win them back to himself. And over that period of time, the world pointed at Jerusalem. They pointed at the temple. They pointed at the city walls. And they said, where is their God? And so the day comes, God says, okay, it's time. It's time to bring them back. And, and, and he calls on the king of Persia at the time to put out a decree. But then he inspires over 40 thousand of God's people, of his own people, to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and to re reestablish the service of the Lord. And that's where we pick up the story in Ezra chapter number three. But I want to start by looking at the end of the chapter. Look at Ezra chapter number three in verse number 11. The Bible says there, and they sing together by course and praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. 
toward Israel, and all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites, chief of the fathers, who were ancient men that had seen the first house, when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy. Now, I'm going to pause there. And my intention is not to talk about verses 11 through 13 so much, because we'll be looking at those next week. But I wanted to start by asking the question, what caused this great shout of joy to be heard all throughout the land? What was the reason for the shouting? And for some, the reason for the crying? Well, I want to look back at verses 1 through 10 and do a study this morning entitled The Great Work. The Great Work of the Lord. And as we look at this, one of the things that I have learned about work over the years, my dad taught us to work. He was a hard worker himself, and he made sure that his sons knew how to work. Um, one of the things that really bothers me about my generation is the lack of labor, the lack of effort, and the lack of work. And what I see many folks doing these days is they'll take and they'll make enough, just barely enough money to pay their bills and to buy some tacos from Taco Bell, and then they go and they sit in their parents' basement or they go and sit in their tiny little apartment for the next week and then they go back and they work again and then they sit and then they work and then they sit. That was not the way God intended life to be. God intended for us to work hard, to labor hard. In fact, the Bible says six days shalt thou labor and then one day we are to rest. Now, I could go into all the details of that. That's not the point of my lesson. The point I want to make here is that if we're not careful, we allow the same mentality to drift into the life of the church. We've got over 50 people coming on Sunday morning now. That's enough. That's a good crowd. And you know, we could cut short and say, you know what, let's just, let's just st stay kind of small, you know, us four and no more. Let's not grow any bigger than this. But that's not God's plan for our church. That's not God's plan for our town. There are thousands of people within 20 miles of our church that desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need a church home. They need a church family. They need a pastor. They need folks that love them. And that's exactly what they can find at Trinity Baptist Church. They can watch God moving and working, and I want them to be a part of this thing just as much as anybody. But with that said... The more folks you have, the more work there is. The bigger crowd that you draw, the more work there is. The more kids that start coming, the more work there is. And the more ministries you add, the more work there is. And so I say all that to say our hearts have to be in a place where we are prepared and ready for the work. And that's where this lesson comes into play. Let's look first in verses 1 and 2 at the prerequisites to the work. What were the requirements 
of the people leading into this great work that they accomplished together. Well, the first one we see is love. Well, notice in verse number one of chapter three of Ezra, and when the seventh month was come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. The first prerequisite to a great work of the Lord as God's people gathered together to accomplish something for his honor and for his glory, the first prerequisite is that they have to be united in love. There are going to be disagreements on how certain things are done along the way. We're getting ready to put a metal roof on and a funny discussion that we've already begun having is how do you put the screws in the metal? It's nine inch D-rib. And for us, we have always, on residential homes, we have always, always, always put the screws in the humps. Well, fortunately, it appears to me as though most of the folks, if not all the folks in our church that's ever put on a metal roof before, they do the same exact thing. That when it's on the walls, it goes in the flats. When it's on the roof, it goes in the humps. So we, we have no, dis no discussion there, no differences of opinion. But had we had a difference of opinion on how that install would go, I would like to think that we could just come to a conclusion and that we could just go along and get along on something like that. Because the fact of the matter is, is love must unite us in order to accomplish anything for the cause of Christ. So as we set out to build our church and as we set out to allow God to use us in that form and in that manner, we must make sure that our hearts are filled with love. There is nothing physical to the structure of our church that is worth breaking unity. Let me say that again. There is nothing in the physical structure of our church worth tampering with the unity of the body. Will we have discussions along the way? Absolutely. Will there be differences of opinion as we grow? Absolutely. But can we get through it? Yes, as long as we allow love to win the day. So first, there must be love. Second, there must be a location. Notice it says there that they gathered as one man to Jerusalem. There was a place, a specific place that they had to become settled was God's will for their life. And may I say, that's exactly what Brazil, Indiana, has become to me. It is my place. It is the exact location that God wants me at this particular time in my life, and I am settled in that. I don't have one moment's hesitation of investing my life in the town of Brazil, Indiana. I, I don't even second guess it because I know that is where God has me. That's why location is important. That's why I mention it. Once we begin investing in our town, two years, five years, ten years, twenty years from now, as we continue investing in the town of Brazil, it will cost us something. And we have to be settled in the fact that this is where God has us and this is what God has for us to do. Brazil, Indiana. Then thirdly, you'll see that there's leadership. There's an establishment of leadership in verse number two. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So you have this group of men, a few in particular, 
that stand out above the rest, but you have this group of men that form up the leadership of this great migration back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. You have Jeshua, you have Zerubbabel, and you have a, a group of the priests, and they all rise up to go. You know, God has given us leadership, and it is something that, as I've told you before, I take very seriously. And one of these days, I, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, I will stand before God and give an answer for how I led Trinity Baptist Church as their pastor. What, a, what an incredible responsibility. It is not one that I take lightly. And each decision that we make, God helping us, will be weighed deeply with Scripture. But I want you to know one thing at the onset that I can give you my word on. And that is the fact that I will always have your best interest at heart in the decisions that we make for the life of our church. Whether it's to add this ministry or whether it's to negate this ministry. Whether it's to, to put this in as part of our regular routine or whether it's to guard against that as part of our regular routine whether we're going to allow this to happen or whether we're going to allow that to happen or whether we're going to participate in this or participate in that, I cannot tell you how many times I get different pieces of literature in the mail and I have to discard them because, simply put, our church is not going to participate in that. And I can't tell you how many times there have been that I get a phone call from this group or that group and there are times that they're good things that I try to participate in. There, there are times that they're not so good of things that we're not going to participate in. I take the guardianship of our body very seriously, but also the leadership. We are headed somewhere. This is not just blindly hoping that we end up at the right spot. There has been distinct moves that have been made over the last couple years the intention of which is to lead our body where God wants us to go. There have been different things that we've added to the life of our church. There's been different moves that I have made, again, weighed heavily with Scripture and weighed heavily with, with answer to prayer, uh, waiting on God's direction and, and guidance. But these are things that we feel are necessary in the life of our church. And I'll tell you, the moment that we can get on board with that plan and run with it as as so many of you have, all of you have, is the moment that I believe God will move us forward into this next phase of the life of our church. So there's leadership, there's location, there's love, and lastly, there's the law. Look at the end of verse number two. It says, to offer burnt offerings whereon at, as or thereon as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. As it is written, as it is written, as it is written. There is a reason why we do what we do. It's because it's written in the book. And there is a reason why we don't do what we don't do. Because it's not in the book. God's word is our final authority on faith and practice. And that must be the case moving into a work for the Lord. There must be love. There must be a location that we are sold out to. There must be leadership that we're willing to follow. 
And there must be the law, God's word, guiding every step that we take. Now, when all of these pieces are in place, oh, I tell you, you better hold on tight. You better get ready. Because then God begins his great work of establishing his church in his place in his time. And that's what this is all about. So we see the prerequisites to the work in the first two verses. Now let's move on to the parts of the work. And we're going to jump in at verse number three. The Bible says, And they set the altar upon his bases. For fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. Very first thing they do, they set up the altar. They rebuild the altar. Now, why do they start with the altar? Well, we get, we're given a, a small hint here about halfway through the verse when it says, For fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. May I tell you what I believe caused them to rebuild the altar first? It was their faith, not their fear. They were afraid of the people of that area at the time because they had seen Jerusalem sit dormant for all these years. Now, all of a sudden, a group of over 40,000 people show up. That's enough to cause war just about anywhere. And they fear the people, so what do they do? They set up the altar and they begin offering on the altar morning and evening. Now, some people would look at that as an act of fear, but I do not. I actually look at it as an act of faith. What they did is they immediately set up the means by which they could get right with the Lord. And they knew that when they got right with the Lord, God would protect them, God would guide them, God would lead them, and God would be their, their, their shelter in this time of storm. God would be their hiding place, as we're getting ready to look at in the worship sermon. God was going to be there for them. And so they immediately set up the altar and they began offering on that altar. So we have the rebuilding of the altar. Number two, they reestablish the feasts and the offerings and the praises. Look at verses 4 through 6 and verse, verse number 10. The Bible says in verse 4, They kept also the feasts of tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the custom of the duty of every day required, and afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and of every one that willingly offered a freewill offering unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Now go down to verse number 10, very end of the verse. It says the, the let's see here, we'll start at the first of the verse, in verse number 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinances of David, king of Israel. So there is this reestablishment of the right feasts, of the right offerings, and of the praises. Then there's a recommitment of the funds. Look at verse number 7. The Bible says there, They gave money also unto the masons and to the carpenters and meat and drink and oil unto them of Zidon and to them of Tyre to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea of Joppa according to the grant that they had of Cyrus king of Persia. So they begin issuing the funds necessary for this great work. So they rebuild the altar. They reestablish the feast. They recommit the funds. And then they restart the service. Look at verse number 8. Now in the second year of 
their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, began Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all that they all they that were come out of the captivity under Jerusalem and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Like a well-oiled engine, they turn the key, start the ignition. Here for over 50, some Bible scholars believe as many as 70 years, the work of the house of the Lord has been dormant. It has set empty. And now all the pieces of the puzzle have been brought back together. The altar is set back up. The feasts are reestablished. The funds allocated. And then the service begins. Oh, what a glorious day this must have been for the people of God to watch as God moves and works in this way to restart the service. What, a, what an incredible blessing. But there was one thing left undone. We saw it at the end of verse number 6. It says that the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Hadn't happened yet. The last thing that needed to be accomplished is that temple foundation had to be laid. So they go and they reset the foundation in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, Then, then stood Jeshua with his sons and his brethren, Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the son of Henadad, with their sons and their brethren the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. The altar has been rebuilt. The feasts, the offerings, the praise has been reestablished. The funds have been recommitted. The service restarted and the foundations reset. Now I want to look at the principles of the work. What can we pull from these truths that we've just now shared with you and, and, and utilize this in the New Testament, in the New Testament church? Well, for starters, I happen to believe that that altar represents the pulpit. It represents the work of the preacher in preaching the word of God to the congregation. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter number 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to turn to several scriptures here and we'll close, Lord willing, with this thought. 2 Timothy chapter number 4. What a responsibility and what a joy it is to pastor a church. To have the privilege to, to read and to study God's word every single week with the intention of preaching to God's people. But may I say, it's also critical not only to read God's Word and spend time in His presence just to be able to preach. If that's all we're doing, then basically we become nothing more than a sermon factory. But oh, to spend time with God and to be in His presence and to experience His presence. And then out of that relationship, birthing the, the sermons that we preach Oh, what a critically important thing that is. Second, Second Timothy chapter number 4, look at verse number 1. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Basically, the way Paul's setting this up to Timothy is he's letting me know this is the most important thing. That's essentially what he's saying here. He's saying, I'm going to give you a charge here 
And I want you to understand there is a great deal of weight behind it. And what is the charge? Look at verse 2. Preach the word. Preach the word. That is our great calling, to preach the word. He goes on, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall not and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. How do you rebuild that altar? How do you get it back to where it ought to be? How do you get that pulpit where it needs to be? Preach the word. I understand. There are other things we can talk about and there are other things that we can say that might tickle the ears a little bit more than the Word of God. But where there is a church, its emphasis from the pulpit is the Word of God, I will show you every time a healthy, vibrant church. Every time. Where there is an emphasis on the Word of God in the preaching, I will show you a church every single time that God is pleased with, where God is honored and where God is glorified. But take me to a church where God's word plays second fiddle. Take me to a church where God's word takes the back burner. Take me to a church where the preacher thinks of everything else and then tries to plug the scripture in last. And I'll show you a church that has drifted, in some case miles away, from where God intended it to be, the pulpit. Number two, how do we see this reestablishment of the feasts and offerings and praises in the New Testament church? Well, we see it in the worship of the church. Turn with me to John chapter number four. John chapter number four, and we're going to just look at a couple quick principles here on worship. John chapter number four and verse number, we'll jump in at verse number 23. The Bible says there, but the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I want to throw one thought at you to really mill over and think about. When worship was established, was it established to please the people? The answer every time is no. Who was worship established to please? It was established to please the Lord. We have to be careful as we worship God that instead of it being a selfish endeavor that makes me feel good, we've got to remember it's not about me. Worship is about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about giving Him the praise that He deserves, the praise that He, he desires. That's what it's all about. How do we do that? Well, we make sure that when we worship Him, we worship Him in spirit and in truth. You show me a church where the worship is spot on and is pleasing to God and is honoring Him. It's the kind of worship that He desires and I will show you every time a healthy and vibrant church. Not only the pulpit, not only the worship, but also the giving of the church. 
We don't touch on this often, but I'll touch on it today because it's mentioned right there in the scripture that money was given for the work of the Lord. What a blessing it's been. I, I talked to our, I've intentionally avoided the conversation of our tithes and offerings over the last six weeks. Frankly, if I'm being perfectly honest with you, apart from our participation in that, that work, I don't even really think about the tithes and offerings. It doesn't ever cross my mind. And so last Sunday, whenever we had our last drive-in service, our church treasurer walks up to me and she said, Pastor, I've been so encouraged with our people. She said, I've been amazed that our giving has really not been down. Folks have been doing their part. This is one of the reasons why I don't spend much time discussing it is because you all do your part. And I recognize that and I, I, I give you great encouragement um, and, and commend you for your good giving. But I want to show you one principle here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that I want to make sure we always remember in our giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and look at verse number 6. The Bible says there, But this I say, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. When we give, let's always make sure we're not just giving the right amount. In the big scheme of things, that is the lesser part of giving. Let's make sure that when we give, we give with the right heart. God loveth a cheerful giver, the Bible says. So we see in the, re or the rebuilding of the altar, it compares to the New Testament church pulpit. In the reestablishment of the feasts and offerings and praises, it reflects the New Testament worship. In the recommitment of funds, obviously it shows us the area of giving in the life of the church. But then there's the restarting of the service. And I believe that shows us the kind of service God wants us to give even still to this day. Look at Colossians chapter number 3. Again, just want to highlight a few quick principles on each of these that I think can go a long, long ways to guiding us into the kind of church that God wants us to have in the area of the pulpit, the worship, the giving, the service. Look at it, Colossians chapter number 3, and we'll jump in at verse number 22. The Bible says there, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto men knowing that of the Lord that ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Understand something here, that God is the one that we are serving for. Never, dear, dear church, don't ever get to a place where your only motivation for service is to please the pastor. Don't ever get to a place where the only motivation you have for service is to get a certain amount of likes on Facebook or a certain amount of shares. Don't ever allow your service to be selfish. Let it be selfless in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, where do we see the resetting of the foundations in the New Testament church? We see it in a protection of the fundamentals of our faith. 
the foundation principles of our belief system. Look at Titus chapter number 2. Last portion of scripture that we'll turn to here. Titus chapter number 2. And we'll jump in at verse number 1. A very simple verse that needs almost no commentary. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Folks, dear sweet church, Trinity Baptist, when we get the pulpit right, when we get the worship right, when we get the giving right, and the service right, and the fundamentals right, what we're left with is a vibrant, healthy, thriving work of the Lord. I believe with all my heart that what's necessary to grow the church are these five things. And as we get these five things right, you know, we can get them all wrong. Just like you can get them all right, they also could be all wrong. The pulpit could be wrong. The worship could be wrong. The giving could be wrong. The service could be wrong. And the fundamentals could be wrong. But when they're right, God moves and God works and God is honored and God is glorified. He is pleased with the work that goes on. And that is my heart's greatest desire as a pastor of Trinity Baptist Church is that God will be pleased and that God will be honored with the work that we perform for Him. The principles of the work. My hope is that this has been a blessing to you and what I'm hoping is as we move through the book of Ezra that it inspires and pushes us beyond our boundaries not to settle for second or third or fourth best but to obey what God wants of us in this area of service. When we obey lovingly one step at a time I believe that we will see God perform a great work in our day. We are all participating in this great work together. There's no one member more important than the other. We're all believer priests in Christ, according to Revelation chapter number 1, verses 5 through 6. That means that we are all part of this work together. Let's make sure that we each do our part and work hard until Jesus returns.